This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Double X Book Club for Thursday, May 6th. My name is Hannah Rosen. I'm one of the co-editors of Double X. I'm here in Washington with the lovely Margaret Talbot from The New Yorker. Hi, Margaret. Hi there, Hannah. And we have Emily Bazelon in New Haven. Hi, Emily. Hello. Hi, Emily. So today we're going to talk about Chang Rui Li's new novel, which is called The Surrendered. Uh, and The Surrendered is essentially a war novel about the Korean War, and it focuses on three characters who meet in the war at an orphanage and sort of basically their lives before and after that point. Uh, one of them is June, who's a sort of orphan. She's a young girl, I think of 11 when the book starts out. Uh, another one, and she has different last names, which is why I'm calling her by her first <laughs> name throughout the book. Uh, there's another uh, character who's very important, whose name is Hector Brennan, and he is a soldier in the war and also sort of calls himself a failure grand and total throughout. Uh, and then the third character is Sylvie Tanner, who's a missionary's wife, and the three of them sort of meet in an orphanage in Korea during the war. So before we get started about the first, the way the book opens, which is incredibly grisly, I just want to ask you guys, because I know a little bit what you thought about the book, because I absolutely love the book, but I don't get the sense that either of you loved it as much as I did. So Margaret, why don't you go first and sort of say a little bit about just what you thought of the book? He's a wonderful writer, and it's a very powerful story. And the lead character in particular, I think, is an or Hector? June, June, yeah. By whom I mean June, is a kind of remarkable character and an unusual one in that she is just a force of pure will who is often dislikable and does some quite amoral and immoral things, but is not an unsympathetic character because she has been through this incredible harrowing experience and because she has such will, she has such a drive mm-hmm. to survive and, you know, does in fact survive. And in fact, when we first meet, well, that when we first meet her, when we meet her as an adult, she has become a successful antiques dealer Mm -hmm. in New York. Two things that are... I guess, powerful but difficult about the book. I mean, one is that it has some of the most harrowing scenes of wartime atrocities that um, I think I have ever encountered, and they are literally at times hard to read. And it's a strange thing to say, but I wondered at times if they were 
piled on a bit because right. we not only get the experience of uh, June as an orphan refugee mm-hmm. at the end of the Korean War, having seen her parents brutally murdered, trying to bring her two younger siblings to safety, they're killed. But then a different wartime memory of this character, the missionary's wife you mentioned, Sylvie, who uh, in Manchuria during World War II as a child has also witnessed and experienced terrible atrocities. And these are also described in great right. detail. And there are a number of you right. know, heroic <laughs> scenes in the book. The other thing, and then we I want to hear from, from Emily, but just briefly, there are moments when I worried about this book verging into melodrama. And I was mm-hmm. sort of surprised by that because it's not a genre book. It's a literary book. Mm-hmm. And for a couple of reasons, I mean, one is this character, Hector, who reminds me a lot of a character in sort of a noir, you know, post-war right. noir. His girlfriend this... was just so film noir. Exactly. She was sort of a Jim Thompson girlfriend. Exactly. And, and I like post-war noir, right. but it felt a little genre-esque in I this know. kind of book. He is this, you know, described repeatedly as movie star handsome, but, you know, classic loser type, you know, barfly brawler, right. and believes somewhat romantically that he is a bringer of doom to right. everyone around him. That's one element. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about Sylvie and how successfully realized she is as a right. character. But anyway, Emily, I... Let's I'd let Emily... I just want to jump in here, because one thing I'd like to figure out during this podcast, exactly the things that you didn't like, or very much the things I did like, which is the sort of theme of carnality. Just there's so much descriptions of the body, like as bad, you know, if you thought it was overwrought, for example, the sex scenes and the things that attracted the characters to each other, I thought were just among the best I've ever read. Sort of the way he described people's smells and how people sort of experience their lover's smells, how people describe their own kind of rank smells. There was so much kind of, he was very conscious about bodiness, like that novel that Sylvie carries around is a novel that describes sort of corpses in this bizarrely kind of explicit way. And even, you know, one of my favorite points is when he discovers that Sylvie is an addict and how he discovers that by the points on her body. I mean, it was very like crucifixion. There's Absolutely. just a lot Blood, of sort of crucifixion pain. in the novel. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, you, I agree. I actually thought the descriptions of smells were remarkable and a real leitmotif of the book. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I agreed with a lot of what you said, Margaret. I kept making the mistake of reading this book right before bedtime and then oh. having terrible <laughs> dreams because yeah. it's really brutal in places. The other thing I was thinking about is how it fits into the other work that Shang Rayli has written. He is one of my favorite writers, and I particularly love The Gesture Life, which is his first novel on which I went back and read part of again after I finished this one to kind of compare them a little bit. And I think part of what is either the strength or weakness of this book, depending on how it hits you, is that he's trying to do something new here. You know, he always writes about these men who are trapped inside their own limited identities. But he usually does it on a smaller canvas. And here we have this, you know, he's clearly striving for a bigger kind of more epic novel. I was a little bit reminded of Ian McEwan's um, shift in atonement Mm -hmm. toward that bigger canvas. And yet we still have this incredibly constrained, to me, main character. And then there's another issue, which is that Lee doesn't usually write in the third person with these kind of different characters who are essentially driving the narrative at different moments. And I'm not sure how well he pulls that off. And I particularly think that although I in many ways grew enormously fond of Hector by the end of the book, he was also 
so distressed. I kept circling these passages like there was something ruined about him, and it was this that she always saw in his face, his expression pleased but with the shattered eyes of a man who could see perhaps only the drenching sadness in beauty. And then, you know, (laughs) whatever, a hundred page later, he calls himself a loser for eternity, a world-class self-pityer, a tireless batterer of men, an embodied doom of women, this now wholly bereft last man standing. That's See, just when you a very... Passages like that. <laughs> I mean, for me, like, I was very, you know, the combination of this very formal and sometimes overwrought writing with the constant physicality and basically absence of dialogue, I, I just found that to be a very compelling combination. Like, why don't we just start talking about the beginning of the book, right? And how the book opens up. Because the book sort of opens up basically like The Road, right? Like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's this just unbelievably harrowing scene of people basically fleeing to what they hope. And there's always things that people are hoping. I mean, a lot of another theme of this book is what is the impossibility of hope? Like, you're, you're sort of pulled towards a fate, which is what you're reading about. Hector, like you're basically set up to have this fate by virtue of your name, by virtue of your ethnicity, by virtue of your limitations, which seems sort of ever more powerful, sucks you down so much more strongly than any kind of religion. Yeah, or whenever the sunlight comes have, right? out, whenever there's any ray of hope in your existence, like it only makes it worse because you start to cringe as a reader. You know that hope is going to be just dashed on the rocks. Yeah, and I actually I think there are, <laughs> there are ways in which he handles that theme sort of less and more subtly, like when Dora gets hit by a car, that was too much for me. I mean, I was writing no, no, no. Right, <laughs> and that right. was really just Dora too much. Dora being was, Hector's sort Dora of Dora being one. Hector's girlfriend. We're, we're really getting ahead of ourselves yes. here. But, yes. but you know, but when, when she does get, I, I, there are moments when that, you know, he handles that less yeah, and that more crudely. Yeah, that was the creakiest. Plot. That was the creakiest plot turn. And actually, every time Hector opened his mouth to speak, I thought those were pretty creaky plot turns. Let's start by just talking about how the book opens. So June is, you know, with these refugees walking, taking care of her siblings. And I'm sorry, Margaret, I'm going to torture you by making you (laughs) explain. Uh, First, I just want to read one description, which talks about it, which which sort of gets into what you guys are talking about. He's describing a farmer, you know. So as in a lot of these sort of apocalyptic post-war ravage novels, a lot of it is about physical discomfort, sort of people being dehumanized, you know, some a, a farmer, people are trying to steal his food. He grabs, at this point, June is with her younger brother and sister. Her mother and older sister have been killed in a terrible accident, which we find out about, and her brother has been sort of kidnapped by soldiers. So it's just her eleven-year-old. Her father's, been, father's, killed. Oh, and her father's, father's been killed. Right? He was he was the first person taken, and June is in charge of her younger siblings. And she, they, they land at this farmer's house with a sort of swarm of refugees. And they basically there's a lot of suspicion. They suspect that the farmer has more food. They kind of make a plea to the farmer to take care of them, essentially. And he grabs her brother like a rag doll. This is just something that happens. And then you know, then the the crowd sort of sets on the farmer, and and the description is. He was crying out like a pitiful boy in a schoolyard, his mouth webbed with bloodied strings of spit. And I think that might be enough. I'm not <laughs> sure I can bear to relive this. All right, come on. One of you want to talk about what happens at the end of that chapter or else I'm going to read it out loud. So why don't you oh, just don't explain? Oh. Okay. okay. I won't read it out loud, but Margaret, one of you say what happened. And then, because I think it's important in sort of setting down what we are supposed to make of June. I mean, it's the key kind of, you know, it's the last page of the novel and the sort of first important incident of the novel. And it really helps you kind of understand fate in June and kind of Well, no, you should say it because I think you have something in mind about yes. the significance. <laughs> Seriously. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm not just. I'm not just. Being okay. Squeamish. So she. I, I will not read it. You're the only one who can handle it. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna read it. <laughs> she's gonna read it. <laughs> Ji Young is the little brother. They've just. She's. She's made their last attempt at trying to kind of speed this up because they're starving and there's a lot of no, starvation. No, you can't read the whole thing. I'm no, I'm not gonna read more. the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> so, so there's a train crash. Her brother's leg has been cut off. He's losing consciousness because he's losing too much blood. And he says, how come you stopped, he murmured. And she says, I can't run anymore. Basically, the train is disappearing. And she's got this choice of either saving her brother and staying with her little brother or getting on the train. And then he says, will you come back for me? And June nodded. You promise? She nodded again. It's okay. You don't have to. She let go. Oh, sad. She let go his still warm hand, kissed his still warm face. She stayed with him as long as she could, but when the last car of the train passed, she rose to her feet and steadied herself, and then she ran for her life. So essentially, she chooses not to save her brother. Although, really, just to Although, be fair, yes, she couldn't have she saved couldn't him have at that point, really. So what is transmitted about June in that incident? I don't actually have anything preordained. I was thinking to myself after I read that that it felt like an important moment and that we were supposed to understand about June that she was... She's not like Hector, right? She doesn't doom herself to certain things. Like, she makes a crucial decision then to sort of rescue herself. Right. right? I mean, she has this powerful will to right. survive. She's portrayed as a very strong character and, in fact, as looking, you know, sort of preternaturally vital and young all her life until actually the present day scheme of the book, which actually takes place in 1986, where she is revealed to be dying right. of stomach cancer, right. which has right. a sort of irony to it because she spent the these formative years starving right, and being right. deeply preoccupied with filling her belly. And yes. here she is with tumors filling her belly, which is an irony that she notes. To go back to this childhood scene, I think we're also being set up for one of the powerful themes in the novel, which is that you bring a certain amount of hardness to the situation if you're going to be someone who struggles to survive in these conditions, but then the experience also hardens you. And so the death of her brother, particularly during her adolescence in this orphanage, really twists her whole being and turns her into someone who has enormous trouble forming relationships with other people, which is, of course, very realistic and completely sad and awful. Right. But I mean, it's one of the, I thought the characters in the book, I mean, you know, there were creaky plot twists and there was a lot of sort of, it was heavy sometimes, but I thought the characters were just incredibly well realized. Like even places where they could have gone cartoonish, like the missionary, Sylvie Tanner's husband, like he was the only person I thought who had realistic dialogue. Like, and June was one of those people where it was really ultimately impossible to tell, like, was that a moment where she was hard? Had she started out hard? You know, was there something about her that allowed her to survive, which you absolutely needed or she would have ended up dead like her brother and sister and the rest of her family or was it sort of circumstances that kind of you know or are you just people fall into a fate I mean mm-hmm. that's a lot I, I, I'm thinking a lot about what the surrendered actually means and is it that people just ultimately have this kind of plot that needs to play out I mean that's very strongly what happens with Hector so now let's talk about Hector a little bit because the the way the novel is structured is that you kind of jump back and forth between the lives of these various people and you're sort of either situated in the present with her in New York in an mm-hmm. antique shop or back in the orphanage and it's it's not exactly like cheesy flashbacky. I mean, did you guys have trouble with the structure? No, I no. thought it was Mm-mm. actually very uh, well handled. Um, I agree. So let's talk about Hector. I mean, Hector was interesting to me because he was a little genre and I thought that actually made the the book more palatable and lighter for me. Like he almost was written like, you know, Jonathan Lethem. He was like a superhero almost mm-hmm. the way he was written. Like he couldn't be hurt. He was right, good looking. He was yes. like so 
sort of this comical Clark Kent. Well, his name character. is Hector. I mean, he's like straight out of Greek mythology, essentially. Although Hector basically asks his father, "Why did you give me this name, Hector? Like, why didn't you give me a name like Achilles or something?" And then, and then Hector's father <laughs> says to him, "Because a man wants a son for a son and has no use for a champion." And I thought his father is basically one of these people who's you know sort of arguing against the war and kind of making a spectacle of himself in the bars and kind of being anti-war at a time when that's sort of unseemly and in a place where that's unseemly. And he has no sort of use for heroes. But that's crazy. It's a crazy reading of the story because Hector is actually heroic. In a lot of ways, he's a more heroic, fuller hero than Achilles. What do you mean by that? I mean, what? how is Hector a hero he's and like how is he a He's like the steady soldier in the Trojan War who keeps going. And, you know, Achilles is a bit of a flash in the pan. But well, what about I, his resistance anyway. to that fate? Like, he does not want to be good-looking. He doesn't wear his good-looking well. This is what his girlfriends... It brings him nothing but horror and pain. I mean, the reason his father dies is because he's having sex with one of the war brides, you know, and his physicality... And he doesn't go to bring his he, father yeah. home from the bar where he's gotten into one of his weekly arguments, uh, you know, making the pacifist case to soldiers home from World War II, which never goes over that big in the right. bars <laughs> of this upstate New York town where the Brennans, this Irish-American family, live. There's a parallel to June here, too, where they've each, at a crucial moment, failed a very beloved member of their family, and then that is part of what surrenders them to their worst sides and their fates and to lots of other awfulness. Well, beyond this business about him being this sort of genre character, there's an interesting question about whether he is, in some sense, um, a Hector-like hero. Mm -hmm. Um, Through sheer persistence, he works at this orphanage after the war. He's, you know, a handyman. And basically, the sort of most optimistic reading he'll ever give of his own life is, you know, he fixed small things. You know, he was the person who came in and, you know, made things and fixed things. But you're right, it still stays within the realm of the realistic, but he's given almost this mythic ability to, you know, to heal quickly. So he's a brawler. He's always getting in fights and street fights, but he, you know, quickly heals. He's around people who are killed, but he survives. Right. He's got almost a stigmata quality where, like, they are almost hinting without going into magical realism that his wounds heal themselves. You know, there's a point, there's a couple of points even when he wants to kill himself. I mean, he has that, the quality of the Hurt Locker main character where he sort of, you know, goes out, you know, in what other people would perceived to be kind of reckless suicide missions, but comes out kind of unscathed. I mean, he's that kind of exactly. war hero, and you know. I, I can't remember one of the reviewers of the book, and unfortunately I can't remember who made this point, and it, it's sort of interesting that he and June are kind of allied characters and that June is pure will, and he's pure strength of will, and he's pure strength of body, and uh-huh. they kind of come together in the end, actually in this mission that closes the book, which is, we haven't even brought up yet, which, yes. is, which is June actually looking for her missing adult son, who is a kind of ne'er-do-well who's gone off to Italy and has fallen into petty crime, and she wants to be reconciled with him before she dies. And he is also... Hector's son, because right. June and Hector have been very briefly married. An episode that is never explained. Yeah. Never yeah. explained. And that you know, the last part of the book is not my favorite. I, I, I was looking for this time for, you know, Dora, his girlfriend, is one place where Hector is at peace. Of course, that's why we know she's going to be killed pretty soon. But <laughs> in, just in keeping with your point, I just wrote this down. This is on page 279, where he says his own best usefulness is in the small unheroic tasks. Like, we sort of know that's not true, that he does have this other gift that he refuses to recognize. Mm-hmm. And 
it's almost like a penance he does. I mean, he does his janitorial work with no gloves on. They make a point of pointing that out. You know, there's a long scene where he's cleaning a latrine, right. you know, and then that jumps back to a scene in which he was a corpse collector, essentially, and had, you know, worked out this very clinical best way to kind of take apart and put together the corpses, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of practical grossness to it, which mm-hmm. which comes up You know, talking the about this is making me bridle at this character more than I did at moments <laughs> when I was reading the book. You know, there are times in the book where he genuinely seems caught in the situation outside his control and he's doing the best he can. And I mean, there's this incredibly another really harrowing scene during his Korean War service where there's a prisoner of war who he has to deal with, um, in which that's true. But then there are these moments where it's so belabored and you just feel like, oh, come on. Like this person has, you know, sentenced himself essentially to cleaning toilets without any gloves for his whole life. I mean, the imagery <laughs> is so practical. You're so practical. <laughs> Put it's on just... some damn glass. Here, Hector, here's the address of the closest CVS. Get yourself uh, <laughs> No, it's like the masochism in it that's too mm-hmm. much for me. And he's supposed to be in his core this decent human being. And yet, like, He's constantly engaging in violence and spinning out of control. And but why do we have damage? any evidence that he's a decent human being? I mean, I think what speaks to me about it is that you don't actually get to make these decisions. The fatalism of it really spoke to me, the sense that you are, you know, given this name by your father, which sort of sets up this fate for you or something happens to you in your childhood or adolescence. And essentially, it's extremely difficult to fight against that. You know, on the other side, you have these missionaries and their constant hopefulness and they're constantly trying to change things. And these things, fa- I mean, you there's so yeah, few and that moments. goes really right. well for them too. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, there's so few <laughs> moments of connection and hopefulness. I mean, one of the we'll talk about this at the end. I don't want to get into this now, but you know, I am left with this question of whether this novel believes in any, you know, whether there is any hope in this novel, whether it's possible right. to have hope. Well, I, I actually wanted to ask Emily something related to that, but then I also think we have to talk about sort of the central sort Sylvie, of triangle yeah, with Sylvie. But, yeah, let's but, move on to the orphanage. But go ahead, ask okay. your last well, question. Well, just then. you know, because you're talking about the fate, mm-hmm. the inexorable. Of, I mean, the fate is war, right? It's they're all in the grip of war to one extent or another. Yeah, and then you get home to New Jersey and things are just as rotten. Well, that's what I right. thought was interesting. That mm-hmm. it's not just a war novel, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a novel that's saying like these are the consequences of war, like the latest MIA video, right? It's like it's more broadly about. I think that's one of the interesting things he does talking about a large canvas is sort of you know place this notion of the war novel in a bigger context. It's not mm-hmm. just war that dooms you. It's just kind of, this is human reality, right? This is what happens to human beings. I guess. I guess. I have to say, I have not read his previous novels. Mm-hmm. And Adjust Your Life, though, from what I know about it, doesn't the character there, he's he's a Japanese-American man who's looking back a lot on his uh, wartime experience in World War II. Isn't that a theme? Yes, that yes, that's true. But it's just not all as like stark and awful and dramatic. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. also realizing that I misspoke in the beginning. I said that that was his first book, but it's not actually. His first book, which is the one I really like, is called Native Speaker. Native and Speaker, it's a little, right. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, it's sort of broadly national identity and sort of war is the more stark form of national identity that he writes about. All right, let's move on to the orphanage. 
orphanage because we also have to cover the sort of journey at the end. So, Margaret, do you want to say a little bit about what happened? Like, what is the orphanage and who's there? And right. sort of Sylvie, who we haven't talked about so yet. So the orphanage is run by, you know, a minister and his wife. And the wife becomes the object of love and obsession and hope for a while for both Hector and June, who is, you know, June is about 14, I guess, at the time uh, that she's in the orphanage. And all the children, the war. really. She's got this ethereal, angelic quality. Exactly. That, yeah. So she is this kind of, you know, beautiful, fragile woman who has herself survived this atrocity in her childhood. Her own parents, I think we mentioned, were missionaries in Manchuria and were killed. Right. And I, I won't go into details about that incident, but um, and <laughs> she... Very awful. Very awful. And uh, she actually is a heroin addict, but she's this kind of, you know, nurturing yet lost soul who all of the children, as you say, are particularly drawn to her. But June above all, because June's fierceness and intensity is singular. And she desperately wants to be adopted by this woman and her husband. And it's kind of clear that's never going to happen, but June wills herself to believe that it will. There is actually an erotic component to her attraction to her as well, um, although it's partly sort of perhaps a twisting of some kind of instinct to be mothered. And then Hector and this woman, actually, Sylvie, actually have a, you know, torrid love affair involving a lot of, you know, Smells. <laughs> smells. Not that that's any fun to read about, man. Elemental. Yeah, I, I, I must say they were the least erotic sex scenes I think I've ever read. There's a lot of really? sort of elemental I just really did not feel that way. It is a lot of smashing, but it's... Together. It just, you felt it was powerful. I powerful, felt it was very it powerful. Exactly it was, you know... Could well, you hear is... Wagner on the <laughs> soundtrack behind you? <laughs> I mean, there is no way that their affair could be joyful. She's right, a sort of right, doomed right, missionary's right, wife, sure. and yeah. you know, he he's a person. God forbid any joy should enter the novel, <laughs> even for a moment. When I was thinking about joylessness, I was really thinking about the soccer scenes, of which there are a couple throughout, uh, and the yeah, kind of yeah. you know the intent, like how even the ball, even the soccer this is ball. At the orphanage. The <laughs> this is both the at the orphanage soccer. and. And when June's sister is still alive, there's the, the soldiers right. effectively force her to play soccer. And I was thinking, man, if you can even turn a soccer game <laughs> into a form of human hell, yeah. like yeah. you're really going for it here. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that was, you know, more than the sex scenes, the kind of inability of children to you play were games. You the soccer scenes. Being a soccer player. Being yourself. a soccer player myself. But even every time the children went out to and play. I could see you out there taking the ball away from those poor orphans. <laughs> As beef jerky is running to them my down. And a soccer scene turns into a rape scene, but, you know, an almost rape scene, and then a sort of grisly death. But you know, there is no ability to play. Like you just have to own that about this novel. They do right. not play. Like they don't play in sex. And although there is what there isn't, if there isn't a kind of lightness in the sex scenes, is a kind of grisly carnality turned into the only possibility of human connection. I mean, there is yes. a genuine connection. Like there is a point when Sylvie, for example, remembers. She says to her something like she's surprised that she had forgotten the shape of him. Like Hector and June have this kind of groundedness that Sophie definitely does not have. She's always floating off into the ether. She 
she's fragile, she's sickly, she's always going through withdrawal, or she's a heroin addict. And I so- just have to read this line from James Wood's review in The New Yorker. He really didn't like this book very yeah. much, and he said that she's, that Sophie seems to float into the book from some future TV miniseries adaptation. <laughs> that is mean. <laughs> Sylvie. I knew you wouldn't like that, Sylvie, but right, couldn't right. resist. Um, Sylvie, sorry. Yes. What would be the TV Who would adaptation? Who Exactly. Uh, I don't know about this as a TV adaptation, actually. Maybe HBO. It's going to be it's a It's like a Sofia one. Coppola movie, right? It has to be like the virgin suicides, like somebody sort of, that's the kind of, you know, feeling. With it to be doom. No. no. She's too freaking healthful. Like, she's too, like, eating her grains and her seeds. And... <gasps> now, you, I'm sure that you both thought it was overwrought the way the orphanage scene ended. That must have been... <laughs> The fire? Yes. But before we go to the conflagration, you know, one of the things I feel like about this novel is that I was much happier or much more pulled in by the backstories of the characters than I was to the front stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, their imagined past, even though they were totally horrible, felt well written and gripping and real to me. Like who's in particular? Because they were not lacking in grizzliness. well, Sylvie's Hector's Junes. I mean, we are presented with these incredibly terrible experiences they had in childhood or adolescence, and those kind of jump off the page. But then when they're actually interacting with each other, particularly for Sylvie and Hector. On the other hand, though, June and Sylvie have this very intense connection at the orphanage where June essentially is clinging to Sophie and and assuming that she will be adopted. And um, I keep saying Sophie. It's so annoying. I'm sorry. So, she um, should, she her name should be Sylvie. Sophie. You're right about that. Sophie is... Oh, that's it's, kind it's, of you. <laughs> um, well, there, you know, again, it's like a little bit like, you know, Catherine Bigelow the director of The Hurt Locker, I thought he's very good on physical gestures, just kind of the meaning of physical gestures and, you know, how people sort of like... Gesture there's life. Gesture life, exactly. Like how, you know, for example, at various points, the 14-year-old June exerts this great discipline he says she's not going to yield a hair to her embrace. She's disciplining herself not to show too much affection for, now I'm going to say Sophie too, <laughs> Sylvie. She's sorry. disciplining herself not to show too much affection, you know, like, whereas anytime they open their mouths and behave well, you're like... you're right, actually. It's, I'm sorry totally to interrupt, right, but it's Anna. the dialogue is actually quite stilted. And that is the part that makes you feel a little like it's a T... I'm sorry to say, but a little like it's a TV okay, movie. A particularly terrible And you're dialogue, right, you're right. Me. It's yeah, all of the physical descriptions, that's where it's, the book is powerful, in the realm of physical descriptions. You know, even if at moments you know, they can be a little overwrought but they are very powerful. The beauty of the Hurt Locker is the ways in which men sort of, you know, convey meaning by wrestling with each other. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of scenes in the Hurt Locker where the men are sending signals to each other. You know, these are not the the American soldiers, but the enemy soldiers are sort of sending signals on a roof. Like, there's all these ways that men bond and debond and unbond. There's almost no dialogue in that movie at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And when there is dialogue, it's sort of actually wonderfully awkward, which right. in this book, it's not wonderfully and awkward. And here it's, like... scenes, it's scenes of physical labor when, right. when there's a scene when Sylvie and Hector are digging. That's how know, they get with that's how they other. get together. Right. They're digging a ditch together. Um, and her you know. face is turning red and she's sweating and he's got this brackish sweetness is one description. Actually, that's his sex with Dora. I thought that was a great yeah. description of yeah. the post-sex smell. But yes, they're digging together and that's the way that they, you know, there was no reason why he thought that she should kiss him after that, but that was kind of in the air after they'd been digging. Even right, nothing happened. right. Whereas the dialogue, this this is the one that I bet you're thinking of, Emily. It's terrible. It's like they're texting each other. They This is where they become sort of miniseries What page characters. are you on? It's on page 414, and he's basically having a petty breakup 
talk with her, and she's saying, you're leaving the day after Thanksgiving, says Hector. Yes, maybe you ought to go the day before. Why do you say that? This way we'll all know the blessing we're missing and when we're giving thanks. Please don't be cruel. I'm not being cruel. I'm just saying it like it is. You know I don't want to leave. I don't know that. You know, it just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. that Hector would be behaving. Yes. Please don't be like that. Don't act like a boy. Isn't that what you want? Please stop, you know. You know, because, and that's one of the uh, only. Oh wait, wait! I have to finish. I have to finish. And they never like, talk to each wait, other. Wait, I just have so to finish. This, this is, is terrible because he says because you wanted someone you didn't have to be righteous and responsible with, and who gave you a good screw besides. And then she, I like of course, says and screw in the same sentence. <laughs> Fuck they you. Often come together. <laughs> right. She says, fuck you, of course. That's what she would say. It's not that it's an inherently terrible dialogue. It just comes out of nowhere. It's inexplicable that she and Hector would have this conversation. I don't know. You've begun to think of their connection as this kind of elemental force that is kind of beyond, beside the point of dialogue, which sort of sounds cliched when I say it that way, but you are caught up in that. You do believe in that. And then when they actually, you know, give utterance to what they are thinking, it's a buzzkill. I thought to myself, how would I have made Hector talk? If I had created this character who was this sort of noir, doomed, overwrought character, what words would you give to some character? I mean, I was thinking to myself, I, I would like read Jim speak. Thompson to try and steal. Right, or some you know? Robert Mitchum movie. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, what were you saying, Emily? You think he just shouldn't talk? I just talk? think that he can't speak. Like, his his noirishness, the way in which he is not actually a real person makes it really difficult to listen to him talk. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe mm-hmm. that's true. Maybe but that... maybe it's just that it doesn't work, and so... It may be that I the inability for him to say anything means that he's not a good fully realized character. Although I did think that that speaking was redeemed later in the scene with him and June when they go to Italy to track down Nicholas, her son, who's kind of gone off on this European vacation that never ended and sort of disappeared from her life. Um, And he has a confrontation with this person who's effectively pretending to be Nicholas, this kind of... um, uh, Which is, I thought, a plot twist that actually does work. I thought so too, actually. Well, so let's move there. I mean, this guy is a sort of scam artist. Uh, Emily, why don't you talk about what happens uh, and why this Italy trip... The reason that Hector goes on this trip is preposterous. Like, the setup for this trip which is that Dora gets hit by a car and Hector's like, all right, I'll just go with June to Italy because Dora got hit June by a car. June, who he hasn't seen in 30 years and never really liked anyway. Yeah, he should um, really kill himself after, he should find a way to kill himself after Dora gets hit <laughs> by a that's car. That's hard. But anyway. Well, I mean, I guess one way to think about, though, the ending of the book, which has some problems, is that it's sort of, if there can be any redemption in this book, it's the redemption for what happens at the end of the orphanage, which is that the orphanage burns up, mm-hmm. in part because of Hector and Sylvie's love affair, in part, and but really much more because of Sylvie and June's intense connection, which is sort of a love affair as well, and June's realization that Sylvie is going to abandon her. And it's the rage of an abandoned child, which I think is really the most powerfully conveyed emotion in this book. You know, it burns everything well, in its June wake. burns everything, just to make she, it clear. Yeah, June sets actively fire sets fire to the, to the chapel. chapel. Um, Yes. Which is a little, you which know. Which Hector has built. Which Hector, which Hector has, has built, built. Which is the which pure is the, space of right. the orphanage. It's white and it's pure and he's put these beautiful windows in it. It's gray, in it. honey. It has oh, this gray. Like, dull right. gray paint on it. That's right. That's right. It's <laughs> Sorry. And it also <laughs> symbolizes Sylvie's whole past and this aspiration of some kind of spiritual um, higher Purity. place that you can go to by working really hard as a missionary. Yes, that's all true. So there's terrible event happens and then off the page in a way that I Sylvia think is, is killed. Creaky. 
Sylvia and Tanner, her husband, are killed, you know, minutes after he discovers with clarity, he suspected a little bit that she's having this affair with Hector at the orphanage. Um, Right, right. And it's, you know, it's basically like the bomb that blows up the book. Right. So then somehow, in a way that I don't think makes sense. Right. Right. It doesn't make sense. Hector and June get married and Hector brings June to the United States and they have a child together, um, even though it's sort of so foreign to imagine them together. I think that's why Lee can't write. But just it. to make it clear, it's not like they fell in love and got married. This is clearly no. a sort of... Um, they came together in some sort of... It well, seems like an immigration and immigration thing. desire. Right. Yes, and right. it's all about Sylvie's death and their own implications and Hector's guilt about Sylvie's death. and ugh. Yuck. But then they quickly split up, and June raises her son, Nicholas, by herself in New York. And that is another, I think, quite powerful and really sad part of this book is her own memories of being a pretty withdrawn single mother who is trying to do right by her child, but just is like the most unaffusive person in the entire planet. Right. And so can't quite give him everything he needs. And in fact, I thought those emotions, which were a more delicate palette of emotions than many in the book, were among the more effectively rendered. You mean the emotions between Nicholas and June? Yes, her feelings of regret about her, you know, failures to sort of be an involved mother. Um, And when you say a delicate palate, you mean because it wasn't, he actually kept it fairly superficial. Nothing, you you know, horrendous. I mean, it's a very sad story how it unfolds. You know, we've moved away for a little while from the sort of harrowing brutality of war. right, And that kind of spare prose and much more, as you said, Margaret, delicate writing is much more typical of Lee and his other books. Those Mm -hmm. passages Mm -hmm. reminded me of the other books much more because, you know, as I was saying, it's a smaller canvas. You don't have these huge dramas unfolding. You have people in much more ordinary situations coming to grips with their own limitations. And so just to say briefly, what happened is that June hires this kind of PI to track down where her son Nicholas is. They take a trip to Italy. She makes Hector go with her, in which they discover that Nicholas has actually died of an infection that he got. Well, they don't discover this. They don't discover. Hector Hector discovers this because he discovers that this other guy has been pretending to be Nicholas, writing postcards to the mother in order to sort of get her to send him money, basically. Um, And it's unclear... Like whether June, because this boy comes to visit June as she's ill. It's Hector unclear. forces him to come. Hector forces him to come. And it's unclear whether, like, June has forced herself to believe certain things are true at other points in the novel. So you can believe that she's forcing herself to believe that this person is her son when it's, you know, this person is not her son. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, also she's, she's dying. Very ill. She's and dying. she's on, you know, in a morphine haze. And, you know, so, Yes. Right, right. So uh, so maybe we can just close on a more positive note. And uh, Emily, you can Impossible. say. <laughs> well, you did say you liked this part of the Oh, letter, positive so just, in terms yes, of, yes. In terms idea, of admiration, no, I, the way the novel wraps up, you know, which is them going to Solferino, which is the place that uh, Sylvie Tanner's novel that she carried around and has been passed from person to person, from Sylvie to June, almost in the fire, was rescued from the fire and then right, passed on to Nicholas. about a horrendous battle of... 1859, I believe. Right. And it makes no sense why Sylvie's carrying this around except to indulge in descriptions of corpses. And, well, wait, but, but isn't isn't it the birth of the Red Cross? Yes, and, yes. and her parents Lieutenant have brought her there to yeah. this on a 
lovely family trip <laughs> to this church, which is actually the entire altar and walls. I guess this is true. I don't know. Are made of bones, including right. skulls of people who died in this. So once again, battle. we have a sort of grisly hopefulness. We have this terrible battle scenes, which are connected to this. And she's possibly. making a. This is the final part of the book. Yes. Which she's making a pilgrimage. Yes. She wants to see this church before she dies. Yes. June does. And the book is leading to that moment where she's making this pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Emily, uh, what did you think of that final journey where she goes to die <sighs> in this place, basically? I kept thinking about the Pietà and this because Hector is literally is carrying her mm-hmm. there. And, um, and there's this sense of incredible sacrifice and effort on behalf of this fantasy is the right word, but a dream, really, that death and this incredibly bloody scenario is worthwhile somehow because out of it has come the Red Cross and has come efforts to stop war from happening again. It's super intense. And the way I'm talking about it, I think, makes it sound almost more gothic, maybe even than it is. And I... I ended with this sort of sense of irresolution. I mean, you know, here we are in this church of skulls. And I don't know if it was because I resist this whole narrative and this notion that you're supposed to totally sacrifice yourself to some larger cause. And the book has, in fact, showed us that that's a useless thing to do throughout. Or whether I can't decide if it I just couldn't appreciate it or if it just really isn't totally effective. Well, I don't know if you guys will buy this interpretation, but it did feel to me, you know, in the way that there are sort of religious moments, there's a kind of resurrection, there's a sort of um, crucifixion moment maybe when June sort of rescues Hector from the fire at the orphanage, you know, there's a sort of beam falling on top of him and she rescues him. And the very last, you know, and then there's the sort of pieta, you know, the moment where he's carrying her. And then at the very end, you know, the only possibility of hopefulness is this scene. They repeat the scene when June abandons her brother, only this time he writes the other half of the scene, which is June being carried into this train. And it's the only moment of sort of hopefulness where she's actually, it's almost a birth moment. You know, someone had pulled her up, borne her in. She was off her feet alive. There's a weird sort of rebirth kind of being carried into the belly of the train. You know, she's on her feet again. There's a sort of resurrection quality to that last scene, you know, because there's sort of references to other great, you know, Jesus moments throughout the book, um, as opposed to the kind of missionaries themselves who are always being sucked under. And so that was the only possibility of kind of hopefulness that existed, I thought. In yeah, this book. I, I didn't read it really as hope. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I mean, to me, I guess the significance of the Solferino battle and this church is um, a little bit difficult. I mean, I feel like it unites these three characters. And to me, one reading of it just is they are three characters who have been through and seen, you know, hell. And so for them to go to a place where, in a way, there's no softening of the reality, there's no, it's a church, and so I suppose it has the spirituality of that, but it's the, you know, rawest most graphic possible representation of death and, you know, memoriam you can imagine is this actual fossuary or whatever the word is where, you know, you're seeing literally, you know, empty eyed skulls staring at you from the walls of this church. And there's something about that they can confront it sort of because Mm -hmm. this is what they have seen, you know, and they are united in their ability to see honestly kind of Mm -hmm. the, the horrors of 
20th century, you know, war and so on. Right. So and that they're unified in that because, you know, and and many people aren't, but they have, right. you know, they have walked through the valley of death and they are all in their own way. I mean, I suppose Sylvie was not a strong character, but she had seen and lived through these these atrocities. So it's it's some kind of, you know, psychological moral connection between these characters that is realized by their mutual attraction to this place. Right. At least they are not alone from dust to dust. At least they go together. Exactly. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, um, I think we should end it on that jolly note. And we do not promise that the next novel will be more cheerful. No, we do. (laughs) We We do. do. I promise. Are we taking requests? Yes. Yes. But we will take requests on our um, Double X Gab Fest Facebook page in which we uh, occasionally put out calls for requests. But we will put out calls for request because it's summertime and so okay we will promise you it, we can't Whatever possibly do a novel it is not a beach treat i will oh, say yes that. we are not going to do a wartime uh, you can't read it at the beach you can't read it at bedtime it's sort of <laughs> not safe right so anyway we will promise a more cheerful novel for our next one uh although our next few double x gab fests will be news ones just to remind you but i would like to um thank margaret talbot for coming thank today you. and emily Bazelon in new haven uh and abdul rufus for engineering this podcast as always and living through this grisliness with us uh, we will walk through the valley of death together next time we will walk through a sunny a sunny nice San Fernando Valley exactly the San Fernando Valley how about that (laughs) and uh, thank you guys again and I hope you will join us for our next one Mm -hmm.